This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. Thus far on this podcast, we've talked about intermediaries' work and their partnership with communities in service of establishing equitable education and career pathway systems for Black and Latinx youth and youth experiencing poverty. We've explored how data can both point to existing disparities in our systems, as well as catalyze change. In this episode, I'm joined by two policy experts and wonderfully thoughtful members of our community to share how the equitable and data-informed practices we've previously discussed can become codified in our system's policies to drive economic advancement, close equity gaps, integrate systems, and hopefully catalyze innovation. Hi, I'm Erica Cuevas, an Associate Director at Jobs for the Future, and I work on our policy and advocacy team. My name is Luke Grime. I'm the Associate Secretary for Workforce Support at the Delaware Department of Education. Erica, Luke, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. I wanted to start by grounding us in what we mean when we say policy, and in particular, equitable policy. Pathways policies take place at the federal, state, local, and institutional levels. So what does equitable policy mean to you? And what energizes you about the policy level you've chosen to focus on in your career thus far? Luke, I would love to begin with you. So my role, I sit at the uh, State Department of Education. I would define a couple things. So first, let's talk about equity. When we look at trying to define things like systemic equity, I think it's very important that we actually define the component parts of that definition. So for me specifically and for my work, we define equity as a word, as the act of fairness and being just. We try to look at social justice. How do we create a more socially just system? So when I think then of the word systems, um, we look at both the types of systems that impact people and populations. So specifically, I do work across our education system. I do work across our workforce system. And we do a lot of work in our higher education system. But what grounds those systems are people. So specifically populations of people. So in-school youth, out-of-school youth, dislocated workers, incumbent workers are typically how we try to ground uh, ourselves in the populations that we have the opportunity to serve. So uh, jumping back. So when I think about systemic equity, I think about justice across those systems and the act of fairness across those systems. So how do we create an education to employment system that is focused on community, that's focused on people, and that centers social justice uh, in our work and in our policy endeavors? So to transition into policy, really, I think about policy from three perspectives. More often, people default to kind of legislative or executive policy. So we do quite a bit of both executive orders or uh, legislative policy. But what I would also kind of push people to think about in terms of where we can create more just systems is both through regulation and administrative policies and procedures. Regulatory effort as well as state plans that are required through our federal government are a great place to insert kind of justice and student equity 
in terms of how we promote and support uh, young people as well as adult learners. And then the last place that I would really push are our administrative policies and procedures. Again, many state agencies, mine included, we try to create work that is transparent to the community so that our effort, the way that we do business, the way that we support people, the way that we support institutions, it's very predictable. And again, it's, it's often in that kind of day-to-day where we can make the most pronounced shifts in terms of policy that is more just. So I hear this sense of fairness and justness. I like, I heard you use that expression as opposed to justice in and of itself. Erica, what about you? Building off of what Luke has already put on the table, are the same things energizing you? Um, like what has brought you to this work in this conversation? Yes, that's a great question. For me, when I think about policy, just building off of what Luke said, we're really thinking about policy being legislation, as well as rules and principles that guide programmatic decision-making that lead to specific outcomes. So as Luke mentioned, there are various levels of policy. It can take place at the state level, federal level, agency level. When I think about equitable policy, however, that ensures that equity is being prioritized in both the design and the development of policy, as well as in the implementation of policy for it to achieve its intended outcomes. Policy has to have an explicit focus on closing equity gaps in order for it to be equitable policy. What is the origin of that policy? Who had a seat at the table in developing that policy? Were multiple stakeholders involved? Were multiple voices and perspectives heard? What language is being used in that policy? Is it asset-based language? Is it inclusive? Or is it deficit-based? Also, what are the key objectives of that policy? In order for it to be policy that's focused on equity, equity has to be called out and center in the objectives. When we think about on the implementation side, in order for it to be equitable policy, we have to look at what enforcement and accountability mechanisms are encouraging, incentivizing, or mandating a focus on closing equity gaps. Is data being collected? If so, who has access to that data? Is that data being used to inform programmatic decisions? Is that data being accessed by students, by families and parents to make the best decisions possible for a young person's pathway? What energizes me is that when we look across the country and across this field, we know that there is innovation happening in pockets across the country. There are places that are doing well in closing equity gaps. There are places that are doing well when it comes to helping ensure access, persistence, and completion of quality credentials for young people that are leading to good jobs. And so I'm energized by the policy work that I do and really looking at ways in which I can help inform policymakers and think about ways in which those innovative practices can be scaled in more places across the country so that more students are benefiting for, from good practice. So between both of what you've put on the table so far, you've sort of set the table with a, an aspiration around what this needs to focus on in both design and implementation. And so Erica would love to keep you in this spot for one second and, and start to bring us down to the, the ground. And in the first phase of our work, you co-authored a brief that outlined specifically the way that intermediary organizations themselves are powerful actors in shaping policies supportive of developing equitable pathways. And so here we're thinking about this focus on fairness, of justness, of in, in both design and implementation. And in that piece, you noted two things that really stood out to me around mobilizing coalitions and designing policies that center equity. How do you see these two roles being interconnected? 
So when we think about effective intermediaries, they do not work alone in policy conversations. They are identifying and mobilizing coalitions or groups to support policies that advance their common interests. So when we think about the role of mobilizing coalitions, bringing diverse stakeholders together, what that looks like is identifying who those key stakeholders are, hearing and understanding their perspectives on various policy issues, using those perspectives to inform the development of policy priorities and positions. So when intermediaries and advocates are thinking about how can they effectively mobilize and develop coalitions, they should be thinking about who are those key stakeholders to bring to the table. That may include youth, students, families, educators and practitioners, other community-based organizations, civil rights groups, those who are directly engaging in communities, and ensuring that all of those perspectives are on board, are engaged, and are a part of of the process. And so that directly connects to this other role of designing policy solutions that center equity. In order to center equity, you have to ensure that you're hearing from diverse perspectives. You're getting insights and thoughts from students and families about what is working for them versus what is not working for them. Ultimately, engaging them in an authentic, regular way can help inform policy design in a way that we can ensure is going to have its intended outcomes. And it's centering and really keeping that end user in mind. And, and in this case, and in our work, the end user is youth and families. Yeah. And Luke, you alluded to this in your opening comments, and I'm wondering if you could dig a little more deeply here, because I heard in what you originally framed is a reliance on coalitions in how you have and are currently scaling a statewide strategy in Delaware. So for you in practice, what does the work of coalition building look like? And, and how has that actually helped you to get to where you are today in this work? From my perspective, if you want to create uh, a more just system, you have to have a coalition. You have to have people that represent the diverse stakeholders with whom you intend to serve. If I look at Delaware's work, you know, our uh, Delaware Pathways Initiative is really the thought child of many different stakeholder groups pulling together with a shared focus on how do we better support in-school youth. So kind of at our table initially were two state agencies. So the Department of Education, which I represented in our Department of Labor. Uh, there was our community and technical college system. So Delaware Technical and Community College, which is a statewide community college system. There were two community facing organizations. So the Rodell Foundation of Delaware and the United Way of Delaware. And then there was an, a majority employer board. So the Delaware Workforce Development Board were really kind of the six partners that chose to sit down and say, we want to design a better system for young people that allows access, meaningful access to college and career programs in high schools and helps to facilitate you know, young people's transition into higher levels of education and the workforce. So in terms of coalition building and then transition to policy, so the first is not every stakeholder knew what every other actor did you know, the nuance of that work. First and foremost, it really helped to broaden perspectives in terms of where there are opportunities to reframe policy, to reframe dollars, to think differently, uh, to braid resources, to look at who's best positioned 
to execute what piece of policy. And those kind of six stakeholders uh, were curated for a couple of different reasons. So uh, first, they represented a significant portion of the field, meaning if we could generate momentum, we could generate significant momentum in terms of advocacy and voice and speaking from a shared uh, place of understanding. Secondly, we were able to kind of mobilize a lot of administrative policies and procedures, things that were in our control uh, without having to go out to a broader system and seek feedback. We were able to move pretty quickly and generate momentum for those bigger rocks, which are a little bit more difficult to move. Um, and then fundamentally, you know, we have a pretty common agreement. So essentially, when we sit down at the table and we talk about our shared policy agenda or we talk about our work together, we tend to focus on the 90 percent of things that we agree to, not the 10 percent that, you know what I mean, divides our country. One of the things that I hear and I have long admired about the work that Delaware has taken on is you and, and your agency, but all the other ones really decentering themselves for the greater good of the youth in, in Delaware. Right. And when people ask me about like, well, what should we learn from Delaware? Why should we look at Delaware? I was like, well, because Delaware doesn't peddle in miracles. They, they just roll up their sleeves and do the hard work. A very simple and tactical thing for people to think about is the real hard work of partnership and, and coalition and working together toward a common set of goals. And one of the things that also really resonates with me, both in what you just named, but also Erica, you framed a moment ago. And, and what I hear is that ultimately policy work is, is narrative work. It's good storytelling. As we talked about in our last two episodes on data, the stories we tell ourselves drive both the work we do, but also how we approach it. How do you both um, think about making sure that students' lived experience and voice are heard in the way policy gets developed and executed and, and ultimately uh, evaluated? In terms of elevation of voice, you have to be intentional. Our organization and all of our partner organizations spend a significant amount of time with the individuals that we are in a position to support. Organizationally, everybody's goal number one is to promote student equity. Part of the promotion of equity is being proximate to the people that we serve and choosing to elevate voices that are not yours. So it's a lot of listening. It's also a lot of intentional development. So an example, if I look at my higher education office, uh, they have a student ambassadors program. We are essentially, as a state agency, employing 15 young people uh, who are helping us rethink about access to higher education. And their work is two part. It's to be a critical consumer, meaning it's to gain knowledge and understand how the system functions and then provide feedback in terms of in actuality, does that occur? So it's the consumer perspective and it's designing for the end user, right? It's kind of goal number one. The second piece is about communication. So if I want to communicate directly to a youth culture, it probably shouldn't come from a guy who's in his 40s. The point here is we need to position young people as peer influencers and having perspective both on the, the system and how they would like the system to behave for them. So right, that's an example of elevation of voice, both to address issues of student equity and also to help create more curated experiences around communication. But I think in terms of policy development, 
you have to really think about this as a storyline. When we think about public policy, it's a, it's a sales job. So it's understanding who the consumer is. It's the elevation of that consumer's voice. It's understanding where that piece of policy impacts the consumer and then where and what agency is best positioned to kind of help address uh, that gap in equity or that gap in public policy. And then it's positioning both the institution and the consumer on the same side of the issue and making sure that both the institution's voice and the, the young person or the adults, the consumer's voice is equal in terms of how that policy is negotiated, is advocated for, and then how it is implemented. Um, and I think there are a couple different examples that I can share. So last session, we had one of the best sessions um, right in the midst of COVID, all kinds of thing from an education to workforce perspective. There were four bills that are just pretty remarkable individually, but universally are kind of game changing for our system. So essentially we expanded our statewide promise program at Dell Tech. Uh, so students now have access to 10 semesters of, you know, essentially free community college. So everything from a short-term credential all the way through a four-year degree is no cost. It, the, that policy was also designed for non-traditional students. Uh, we expanded our tuition assistance program at uh, Dell State, which is our state HBCU. Again, all four years of tuition are paid for for Delaware residents. And then we ran two uh, credential bills. So an individual is eligible for a $10,000 scholarship, a young person exiting high school to pursue an in-demand industry credential. That same benefit is available for an incumbent worker. And what's unique is our Dell State, well, one of our core university partners was kind of lead on the uh, Inspire Scholarship, which expanded the tuition program at Dell State. Dell Tech uh, was lead on the, the Promise program uh, that obviously impacted our community college system. Our organization uh, was lead on the $10,000 scholarship for youth credentials and the Department of Labor uh, was lead on the $10,000 scholarship for incumbent workers. And it's that division of labor in terms of how you engage in public policy in a shared narrative that collectively these things are amazing. Collectively, we can have a much more systemic impact if we focus on the position as a whole. So it's essentially, it's, it's moving this agenda through a very deliberate way with very curated agency leads or organizational leads. And then it's just knowing how to stack the deck. So, right, when we test, we had committee hearings, the institutions didn't testify at committee hearings. The individuals who would directly receive the benefit of the program were the core voice in the message, not only in the design of the policy, but in the articulation of the policy to key members of the state legislature. And that is really, the, in my opinion, the, the winning combination. You know, I hear again back the, these intimations of the power of the coalition and the division of labor that is is toward these collective goals. And I listen to you talk about this stuff, Luke, and it sounds so simple, but it's not happening at scale. And Erica, I'm wondering if what else do you see with, with a national lens, like looking across policy contexts, um, where else do you see this gaining traction in similar or different ways than Delaware? Or where do you see the barriers that are keeping, frankly, more folks from doing what we hear Luke talking about today? Yeah, that's a great question. Just want to underscore this piece around the need to center students' lived experiences and their voice in policy conversations. 
And it's particularly critical for organizations like ours that may not have direct contact on a regular basis with young people or with families. And so how can we continue to do this work in partnership and coalition in a regular and authentic and intentional way? And one area that I see some success at the national level is through a coalition called the Today's Students Coalition. And JFF is a steering committee member of this coalition. It's made up of various national policy, advocacy, and membership organizations who are all joining forces together to urgently push for post-secondary policies that best serve today's students at the federal level. When we think about today's students, they're oftentimes older, they're oftentimes working full or part-time, caring for young children or parents, they are often first-generation college goers, informing our policymakers at the highest level of who today's students are is so critical because when we think about our congressional leaders, for example, or the staff that support them, many of them, I would say nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, their pathway was going directly from high school to a four-year university. So they have a limited perspective themselves about what are the needs of today's students. So a lot of this advocacy work, this coalition building of educating just at the foundational level who today's students are is really critical. And I think it's it's this piece around that you mentioned, Kyle, you know, how what are the barriers of this type of work happening in other places across the country. I think a lot of it is limited capacity, not seeing the benefit of joining forces with others, that we don't have to do this alone or individually, but we can leverage the assets of our partners, of folks within our communities to do this work together to alleviate some of that that capacity that we may be lacking um, to be able to, to focus in on this space. So I would say really more education building that we can do just to advocates generally on how to do this type of work well would be very helpful. Yeah. And what I'm hearing also is not just how policy can shape the story, but I'm hearing direct signals about how that policy becomes a tool for empowerment or potentially liberation um, at, at very pragmatic and practical levels. When we think about dollars in hand to support attaining that credential, when we think about a multi-gen strategy, that it's not only focusing on in-school youth or only focusing on incumbent workers, but a coordinated approach that says youth, young adults, and adults need access to credentials that will allow them access to the labor market and, and economic advancement. And so it brings me to something we talked about in the first episode of this series was, and I, uh, introduced the idea of critical hope that Jeffrey Duncan Andrade talks about. And uh, stating the obvious, we're in a very um, particular and unsettling moment in our nation's history right now. And a lot of times I think policy work can feel fraught. We see deadlock, but the stories I'm hearing you telling tell a different story here. And so for the changes you're looking to see, um, Luke, how do you balance what feels possible with what feels aspirational or even imperative? Um, and like, how do you stay focused on the equitable state we want to achieve with, frankly, everything else happening around this work? How do you stay focused on this? So first, I think it requires a little bit of discipline. And it also requires a very articulated and well-defined North Star. So when I think about our work around systems development and student equity, uh, as I mentioned earlier, everyone's goal number one in terms of our organization is focused on student equity. Student equity is our shared North Star. 
We define it from an operational standpoint, and then it permeates our organization into things like how we set up our performance evaluation and goal structures, right? So it's um, both an aspirational objective, but it's also a very strategic deliverable. So I think first is discipline. Second, it's a shared commitment and a shared North Star. And it's kind of that unwavering commitment to that North Star. That, that's, that's, that's really important. But in terms of how you balance kind of, you know, singles and home runs, uh, to use like a sports metaphor, I want both, right? Like I want all of the above uh, and I want it every day. Anything that we're doing that doesn't directly connect to our North Star is not something that we do or entertain. So I say no a lot. This is a nice idea, but perhaps it's not the, not the right thing right now. If I can't directly associate it with what our commitment is to young people. Uh, and I think it takes discipline to say, to say no, that's, and that's also not always popular. And you have to be okay with that. Erica, could you add any, any additional color or perspective on this as well? Yeah, just to add to what Luke said, I completely agree that we need both. We need to work together on those smaller changes where we know there is some bipartisan support while also having a North Star or some larger aspirations to really push our systems to a new place, a transformative place that we know once we get there, all individuals will be served, all young people will be supported, and there will be true equity as someone who works in D.C., it can be hard and it can be a struggle when we look at what's happening at the federal level. There's a lot of partisanship. There's not a lot of bipartisan collaboration. But there are little slivers where there is some agreement across the aisle where we want to make sure we lean into those pieces to, to make sure that those move along, those move across the finish line while still centering equity. Some progress, a little bit of progress is better than nothing at all. Ideally, would be in a place at the federal level where we would have, for example, a comprehensive full reauthorization of our Higher Education Act. That is a piece of law that is way outdated. It needs to be updated to meet today's students and our today's institutions. And we're just not going to get there anytime soon because we know Congress and, you know, at the federal level, folks are really gridlocked. But where can we pick out pieces within there that we know there is some bipartisanship and move those pieces along. The last point I would make about the North Star and about having some sort of big aspirational goal is that when we put as advocates those visions out there, it helps really move the conversation along and have all of us question, okay, why aren't we there right now? How could we get there? And I think putting those aspirations out there gets more people on board, gets more perspectives in the mix. That way, as advocates, we can continue to reform, adjust as we go. That way, when we do hopefully get to a point of a policy opening or a policy opportunity, we've done a lot of that groundwork already. So I completely agree with what Luke said. We need to do both at the same time. Right. The singles and the home runs. We want them both. And, <laughs> you know, Luke, I think you said something to the effect, I want them both every day, all the time. Luke, I'd like to give you the final word here today. So as you consider from your unique vantage point, where we are and where we are not building a truly equitable pathways systems level approach, what's the real game changer? What's the holy grail 
when it comes to policy if we are really serious about centering equity in both process and outcome for youth, young adults, and adults? So I, um, I'm going to piggyback off of Erica's comments and um, take a little liberty. It's, it's impatient. Impatience uh, is we should not be patient, uh, essentially. So to use the Higher Education Act as an exemplar, I do think there is agreement for 90 percent or more of what we want to do in terms of education to employment strategies. I really do. I think the idea of economic competitiveness I think the idea of you know, supporting youth and adults to access good jobs at providing living wage, I think there's broad bipartisan agreement for those things. We just have to center the person that we wanna support uh, in that endeavor and in that communication tactic. But I also think we need to be a little bit impatient. A lot of times when we look at policy, we look for the lead federally, but in no way should it limit our innovation at the state or local level, in no way should it limit what we choose to do today. So an example of free community college for every person in a state, there are multiple states that have done that. You know what I mean? It essentially does not follow a federal queue. States are choosing to act. Localities are choosing to act. And I think any movement towards this broader idea of what we want in terms of a more just society, access to high quality K-12 and post-secondary education, universally is positive momentum. And it's that collective narrative, whether it's generated locally or it's generated at the state level, or it's a big piece of policy that exists federally. I think all of those things have to happen simultaneously. And that is where we will see kind of innovation in our system. That is where we'll see kind of systems react and adapt to people and consumers. Uh, And I think it's those collective narratives that really apply pressure at the federal level, the state level, or the locality to do more right now. Well, here's to encouraging a great deal of impatience among all of these stakeholders. Uh, That is a a great way to close this. Luke and Erica, getting a chance to talk to you today and and listen to what you have to say, um, it has been a real gift. Um, So thank you both for your time and for um, enriching our ongoing conversation uh, about how to build and scale an approach for truly equitable pathways. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Yep, thank you. I leave our conversation with Erica and Luke today, reflecting on how the effects of policy permeate and cascade through all levels of our education to career systems. And the idea of dual transformation also stands out to me. One part of the work is about reinventing today. We have to be doggedly pragmatic in how we advocate for and develop policies that address the problems in front of us right now with regard to equitable access and outcomes. Another part of this work is about how we create a vision for tomorrow. Effective policy and the effect of policy spurs new ways of working because it redefines the nature of the problems we aspire to solve and shapes a strategy for how we can do so. This is the work. Leaders and policymakers at all levels of the system have to bring about curiosity, conviction, and courage to set out a bold agenda for change and then commit to the hard work of collaborating across silos to see it through. Be sure to tune in for our last episode of the season to hear from three guests who will bring unique points of view reflecting a diverse range of organizational, institutional, political, and economic contexts in which they are leading change. 
Together, we will reflect on the ground we've covered so far in this podcast and consider the road we still have to walk in our work to build equitable pathways systems. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, and tune in for our next episode. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.